Welcome to Series 3 of the Happy Saver Podcast. I'm Ruth, a blogger on personal finance right here in New Zealand. And on this podcast, I tell the stories of Kiwis and their experiences with the money in their lives. Now, the people I seek out uh, to interview are often uncomfortable talking about money publicly. And in most cases, they have actually never talked about their financial setup with anyone. And that's why you hear their stories from me and not directly from them so that they can retain their privacy. You will hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are giving their tips and their points of view on personal finance in New Zealand. And personal finance is indeed deeply personal. So with that being said, I was lucky enough to meet Tom in 2018 and have a pretty in-depth chat about share investing. I don't know what it was like for him, but for me, the conversation had me thinking for days afterwards and it left me wanting to know a whole lot more about his money journey. So I was intent on convincing him to pick up the phone and talk to me for this podcast. Now, just quickly before we get started, Pocketsmith wanted me to tell you a little bit about them before I tell you all about Tom. Today's episode is brought to you by a company that I really like to use, Pocketsmith. We all know what a Swiss Army knife can do, and Pocketsmith is kind of like that, but for personal finance software instead. It equips you with a multitude of the right tools to make all of life's money decisions, and it's New Zealand made. So if you're saving for a deposit to buy your first house, then Pocketsmith will help you track your spending and saving so you can reach those big milestones much faster. If you would like to try Pocketsmith, go to thehappysaver.com forward slash Pocketsmith and get 50% off the first two months on a monthly premium subscription. Pocketsmith, clever budgeting software that lets you see your financial past, present and future. So this week I caught up with a seasoned investor. He wanted to keep his details on the down low, so I'm going to refer to him as Tom. Why Tom? Well, mainly because I looked out of the window while trying to think of a name for him and I noticed that my tomatoes are ready. So Tom it is, and that's what happens when you let me pick your alias for you. Tom grew up in Canterbury, or as they like to say in those parts, he was born and bred in Canterbury. From an early age, his family of four reduced to three, and he moved with his mother and his older sister to a farm in Canterbury where she worked as a housekeeper for the farmer. They lived here for three years uh, before his mother eventually remarried and they moved back to town, but living on that farm was where he first began to be given his education in how to handle money. Tom used to receive two shillings a week as a young boy in the late 1950s. Now, I'm sufficiently young enough to have absolutely no idea how much money that is, so I used the Reserve Bank inflation calculator, and that tells me that in 1960, that was probably about $9 a week in today's money. Now, on their regular trips to town, the farmer would say to Tom, I'm happy to buy you an ice cream, that's no trouble at all, but here's the deal. If you spend none of your money, when we get home, I'll give you another sixpence, which equated to about another 25% of what his mum had already given him. If he did spend some of it, well, the deal was off. I think he still got his ice cream, though. It felt natural to Tom to recognise a good deal when it was offered, and that set him to starting to save into the Canterbury Savings Bank account that his mum had opened for him. And he remembers that interest was only 3%, but he noticed that if he kept putting his money in there, then the account balance just kept getting higher and higher, and he really enjoyed watching that account balance grow. From this simple beginning, a lifelong saver actually emerged. Coupled with this was the sage advice from his mother who said that you never buy anything on the drip, meaning that if you can't pay for it now with cash, well, you don't get it. It's as simple as that. 
Now, of course, in the 1950s, 1960s uh, in New Zealand, credit was hard to come by and people in that time were much more frugal. Being a country at the bottom of the world, many things were in short supply and there was just so much less choice than we have available today. That is just how things were back then. Now, it's funny the memories that stick with people. Uh, Everyone I speak with remembers a key point or a key conversation around the use of money that stayed in their memory. And one such memory for Tom was recalling his mum coming home with two new pairs of trousers for him. Now, he looked at the price tag and he said, Mum, I can't wear trousers that are that expensive. And he made her take them back. He said he could not wear them and that he would never feel comfortable in them knowing how much his mother had spent on him. Now, A simple memory like that also highlights a cohesive family unit where each member was thinking about the other members. If he got those pants, then someone else would be going without. So what a great way to think about your family and to work as a team, right? Now, Tom continued on through school, uh, working jobs and saving all the while, and then on to university where he began to study engineering. Through hard work and saving almost everything he earned, he had saved enough to put a deposit on his first house, which he purchased for $12,000 in 1973. He immediately rented this place out and he continued living at home with his parents, but after meeting and marrying his future wife in 1974, he booted out the tenants and they moved into the house themselves. It was a fixer-upper and they worked on it and improved it over about a five-year period. In today's money, that house would have cost about 550000 to buy. But for Tom, um, university didn't go so well. Socially, however, it went really well, uh, too well in fact. But too much time playing cards and hanging out with his mates meant he actually failed his first year and was kicked out of his engineering course. So it meant that he had to transfer to studying engineering at Polytech instead ultimately completing a five-year work-study course, which was a combination of working and doing night classes. Now, even at the end of this, he realised his mistake by flunking uni. So, with some good grades now under his belt and a few extra papers in math, they let him back into university and he finally got his engineering degree. So, what's the moral of that story? Well, go to uni and by all means have a great time. I know I certainly did, but study should always come first. And the second moral? If at first you don't succeed, then try and try again. Now coming back to the housing market again, when he bought his house in 1973, he said it was in the days of rampant housing inflation in Christchurch. Now the year before he bought his property, his sister had actually purchased one, which was just a few streets away from his, and it was similar in many ways to his, but she paid $8,000 for it, and remember, he paid 12000 He said that the rest of the country was experiencing the same, but that Christchurch in particular went berserk between 1973 and 1975. He said that over the years he has noticed that house prices would surge and double in value in a really short space of time, and then they'd stay static for at least five years, maybe seven. And he reckons that this pattern continues today, and when I thought about the first house that Johnny and I purchased in Christchurch, this was exactly what happened to us as well. We bought at what turned out to be the bottom of the market at the time, and then pretty quickly our house price did double in value. It was pretty crazy. So he went on to purchase a second house, a rental property, in 1975, and in hindsight, he bought at the top of that market cycle. Uh, He put down 25 to 35% uh, as a deposit, and interest rates were about 7%, but he got a good property, and he knew that he could make some great improvements to it. And sticking with property a moment longer, he does not believe that there has ever been a correction in the Christchurch housing market or, or a drop in prices. Instead, prices would stay static for about five to seven years and then all of a sudden, over two to three years, they'd just rocketed up. Now, 
Obviously, the Christchurch earthquakes had a major impact uh, as supply and demand really influenced prices, but it's levelling out again now. However, he talked about a few examples of where things don't always go up, and over the years he has had friends in England whose house prices shrunk by 30% after they purchased it. And also he's got a friend who was in Sweden who was looking at buying a house. And the house they really wanted was asking for over $800,000. Now these people, they offered $800,000 and were turned down flat. So they went on and they bought elsewhere. But three years later, they came back to this property and they purchased it for $500,000. So houses can go up in value, but they can come down too. After he finally finished all of his study, he went straight to work in an engineering role, earning good money. It was $8,000 a year or about $60,000 in today's money. But after just two years, he was forced to quit. Why would that be? Well, those uni mates of his had told him a few years previously that he had to meet them overseas in a particular year so that they could all go and do an OE and have a, a trip around and maybe get a job and there were to be no excuses he had to be there so when that date rolled around although everyone thought he was crazy for chucking such a good job in he and his wife prepared to leave New Zealand their intention was to sell the rental property and keep their own home so that they could return to it when they came back to New Zealand after two years. But after months on the market with a real estate agent, it just didn't budge. So in 1979, about two months before they were due to leave, he put their family home on the market as a private sale and he sold it all by himself in just one weekend. So by default, they took the rental property off the market and they kept that house instead. And off they went. Now, part of the reason he chose to stay away for exactly two years was so that at the end of that period he could import a car back into New Zealand tax-free. Now Tom confessed to being a bit of a car nut and the car he was really intent on buying was a 1980 Audi 5T. Now apparently this is a top of the line or it was a top of the line five-cylinder turbo and at that time there were no cheap Japanese imports into New Zealand. If you wanted to bring a car back from overseas before that two-year time limit was up then you would be charged a phenomenal 170% tariff based on the value of the car. Now the car he was really keen on getting was worth $10,000, so tax payable would have been $17,000. His plan was to import it back into New Zealand and sell it for two and a half times what he paid for it. He had no sooner paid the deposit on this vehicle, however, when our Prime Minister of the day, uh, Robert Muldoon, he up and changed the rules and the restrictions on importing cars and things began to ease up. But it was too late uh, for Tom because he'd put down his deposit and he was committed. So in the end, uh, he did drive that car and he did really enjoy it, but it never did make it back to New Zealand. Instead, he sold it in England uh, and got back more or less what he paid for it. And this helped fund their move to Scandinavia. Now, at least he was not nailed by depreciation, right? So it must have been a pretty sought after car. So their two years away morphed into 16 in total as he, his wife and their two children began years of working and travelling in the UK, um, in the US of A and also into Scandinavia. Now he found work pretty easily in his field of engineering and he continued to grow his salary and despite his love of cars, which he certainly did follow up on, uh, he continued to invest a portion of his salary year in and year out and they finally returned to New Zealand in 1996. So he continued his career back in New Zealand, where after a time his marriage unfortunately ended, but he continued to work, to save and to invest. So next I wanted to know more about how and where he chose to invest uh, and when he made a start. 
Well, his first investment, he said, was just into a dirty old savings account, just learning to always live on less than you make and to put some aside. And this is a philosophy he has always lived by. Next, as I've mentioned, came his first house and then buying a second property, which they rented out. And home ownership, he says, is one of the key pieces in the puzzle to financial independence. His simple suggestion is to just get into a situation where you own something instead of renting. Even if the property you buy is below a level you are actually comfortable living in, it does not matter. Just get yourself in the market at the lowest point of entry that you can. And then if or when you choose to upgrade, do it at the end of a stagnation period, that period when property prices have stopped their rise. Having worked in the housing industry myself, I saw it time and time again, first homeowners trying to create this fictional forever home and wondering why they were drowning in debt. So take Tom's advice, start small and build it up. His first investment other than real estate was actually gold. He had been noticing in the newspapers that the price of gold was fluctuating and it made him ask, well, what's gold all about? So he began to educate himself. And when he looked, he found that most currencies are based on the gold price. So when he was living in England, he found out that the bank he had signed up with actually sold Krugerrands, which is a South African gold coin, which was introduced as a way for people to have private ownership of gold coins. And it was easy to buy through this bank. So in 1980, he wrote to his mother back home in New Zealand and he said, hey, mum, do you want to take a punt and buy some gold with me? And she said, sure thing. And she was in. He thinks he paid $280 an ounce for the first Krugerrands that he bought. Now, his first premise was that they must go up from his original buy price of $280. Well, he was wrong. (laughs) Soon after, they dropped to $260. So he thought, "Mm, they must go up from $260. Wrong. They keep dropping in price. So he bought more at $240. Then he bought some more when it dropped to $220 and he thought, look, this has to be the bottom of the drop. And luckily it was because by this stage he had invested over $20,000 of his money and of course his dear old mum's. And when the price rose to $300, he dumped the lot and he made a small profit for both his mother and himself. And he was all sold out of gold by 1980 and he thought, well, that was a bit risky. Perhaps I should try and buy something a little bit safer. Of course, Murphy's Law comes into play here, and that meant that the gold price went from US 200 an ounce to $800 an ounce really rapidly, but he'd bailed out at 300 So as a reference, today's gold price is $1,300 US dollars. At about this time, he and his wife had met and become friends with a woman who was interested in investing in stocks and shares, and she introduced Tom to the idea of mutual funds and unit trust. And she said, Tom, you really should try some of these. It's a good, safe investment that goes up with the market or down, and you really should take a look. So he looked into them, and he discovered that, by chance, the head office of the company they were talking about was just 10 kilometres down the road from where they were currently living in the UK. So he felt that he could actually trust them, so he started buying into unit trusts. About 25 years later, the same woman also told him, Tom, you really should buy some cryptocurrency. It's called Bitcoin. And at that time, they were valued at about $200 a coin. And she said she'd bought a couple and he really should too. So today, uh, they are valued at about 5700 New Zealand dollars. Of course, by the time you listen to this, goodness only knows what the value of them will be. But yeah, nah, he didn't buy into any crypto. Uh, another friend was into future trading and she was earning about five times his salary at the time, and she said he should give that a go too. But that was not for him, and there did not appear to be an ounce of regret about this, because at the end of the day, 
he listens to his friends, he educates himself, but he trusts his own counsel. And as he and his family bounced around various countries, he always kept an eye on the newspapers, as best he could, about how the markets were performing and what was going on. But information was scarce, because remember, this was prior to the internet, unlike these days where we can pretty much find out whatever we want in about 10 seconds. But he and this is, I find this quite interesting, he was approached from time to time by investment companies wanting him to invest with them. So talk about a really direct marketing tactic. Like they actually approached him by picking up the phone and he said that this was in the days of snail mail, faxes and telephones. And one example he gave was when he was living in Scandinavia and a company now called Oppenheimer Funds phoned and they said, look, we hear that you invest in unit trusts and we suggest that you put some of your money in our unit trust because last year we made 40%. Well, he thought, you lying sods, there is no way you can make that on the stock market in a year. So they sent him some stuff, some literature to read, but he was pretty sceptical and he thought that they were, um, these are his words, bullshitting him and probably just made all the numbers up and wrote it down themselves and sent it off to him. But they rang him a year later and they said, well, that year they'd had returns of 46%. Did he want to invest now? Once again, he did not put money in. He still thought they were dodgy. Now, a year later, he moved to America and he was able to do some proper research into them. Well, he found out that they were not um, lying to him. Those returns were indeed correct. But once again, he had never put any money in. So once again, he does not tell the story of missing out with any great regret. It's more with a bit of a laugh, actually. And at about this point, I was beginning to doubt whether this interview was going to show you and I how to actually make money investing. So I asked Tom what he invested in that actually worked, as clearly cars, gold and Oppenheimer funds were not working out that well for him. Working in England and Scandinavia, he made a really good income. He always saved and invested into his funds and things just ticked over. Moving to the east coast of the US, things started to surge ahead for him and the company he worked for offered him a really good package, paid for accommodation for a month to give them time to find a house and they also gave him access to an interest-free housing loan which he took full advantage of. They even gave him a cheap car to run around in. Tom recalls an Uh, a rather awkward moment when his Porsche 928 that he had imported with him arrived and he drove that to work, not the car that they had given to him. At which point his boss looked at him and said, why the hell did we just give you interest-free money if you already clearly have enough to buy a car like this? Now this was the yuppie young urban professional era and I could just see him feeling like the shiz with his Porsche 928 briefcase and he probably had a brick cell phone and was rocking his 1980s vibe. But remember when he was a kid and the farmer offered him a great deal? Well, Tom figured it was offered, so we took it. Another thing he always took advantage of was any pension plan offered by an employer. He never thought the pension that he would receive when he retired in New Zealand would give him a decent living, and he always planned to finance his own retirement. Now, the first time this came up, his employer simply said, you are in this pension plan, and he just said, all right then. And to this day, he is thankful that in each successive company and country, he took advantage of share options and retirement accounts. And as he moved from place to place, these came with him. He was earning $95,000 US in the late 80s and the early 90s and they paid $130,000 US for a house in 1985. Uh, Compare that uh, to how out of whack our salaries and the costs of houses are currently. And the guy they bought it from had paid $90,000 the previous year and they went on to sell this house just two years later for $190,000. 
and next in 1987 they moved to a different state in America and bought a house that was twice the size for $160,000 US. It had all the bells and whistles and even after making some improvements they still had some money left over. Now Tom still likes to travel back to America from time to time and an observation he has made of a lot of families in the Midwest of America is that they have a three-car garage but their cars sit outside. Why? Because the garage is full of stuff. They just keep buying more and more stuff and that is what he started trying to do back in the 80s. But then he stopped himself and he started to put that cash aside instead. He had been reading and educating himself about stocks and investing and had been dabbling in individual stocks but having huge success followed by huge failure. He had invested in Chrysler and made six times his investment in the space of two years but overall he had probably had a dozen real gains and two huge calamities. On October the 19th 1987 when Black Monday hit and stock markets around the world crashed he thought well this could be my opportunity, this could be my golden egg. So on that Monday, he rang the company he had already been buying unit trusts with and he said, what funds do you have that have dropped like a stone? Find me the ones that have dropped the most. And he found one that had dropped by 30% and he handed over an $11,000 check. His investing philosophy really started to emerge. And between October and December 1987, he was closely following the share market. And in early December, the market corrected another 19%, which happened to be the day that he was on a plane ready to fly home to New Zealand for a visit. And when he got to LA, he found a payphone and he called his broker and he invested another $5,000 in shares as he exited the country. Now, back in New Zealand, he was having a good time, but he was more or less oblivious to what was occurring back in the US. Like I say, the news coverage was just not what it is today. But by the time he returned to the US about a month later, his unit trusts were up 30%. And those shares that he bought on his way out of the country, they'd gone up sixfold. So he continued to dabble over the next year or two, learning about a company and an industry and then investing while always investing in those unit trusts and mutual funds. He put $3,500 into a steel mill in Cleveland because all of the others had closed and fallen by the wayside. This was the only one left. So he thought with all the competition gone, they must be a sure bet, right? Well, wrong. His $3 stocks turned into what they call penny stocks and he lost his $3,500, which was not a huge sum, yet he puts this as his greatest financial flop. Now, I'm working it out myself that investing is a journey and every step along the way I do learn something and Tom was exactly the same. He reached a point where he had won and lost with investments into individual stocks but he was winning with unit trusts and they were far less risky. And he thought he could win with the stocks but every Saturday morning he had been spending about two hours with the newspaper updating manual spreadsheets and following individual stocks and it was a hell of a lot of work and he could still not predict what the stocks were going to do. He was making decisions on gut feel but at the same time he was reading magazines where there was stock picking by gurus advising him what to buy but he didn't buy what they said but he noted down what they said. They supposedly knew best of course and he religiously wrote them down and a year later he would remember to check back and he found that all these gurus were absolutely hopeless at picking stocks, as was he. So throughout this time, he had been investing consistently into these unit trusts while trying to hit the jackpot with shares, but his unit trusts were consistently doing so much better than individual stocks. So from that moment on, he switched his attention and his money to them. Now his choice has been to go with specialised funds, which are linked to a segment such as medical equipment and treatment or housing 
or IT, and he invested in fields that he thought would do the best. The only broad-based fund he had was one called Blue Chip and another called Contra, and they would move quickly and be agile and had done well in all times. There was another fund which was made up of small stocks traded on the S&P 500. So this as a mix all did quite well. But he was not done playing around and along came a market correction. So he sold out of some of his funds and injected his cash into precious metals instead. And he found that in times of strife, people flock to gold and the price goes up, but the price of the companies who manufacture or produce gold go up exponentially higher. So he invested in those producing company stocks and watched his money go up 67% in six months. So he said, a bit tongue-in-cheek, if you can predict a crash, you really should jump into the mutual fund that has precious metals. Good luck predicting that crash, everybody. Let me know. Now, all up, he spent 10 years in the States, finally returning to New Zealand in 1996. And when he came home, he lost all access to these markets. There was no internet and no way to follow as closely as he needed to what was going on. So he switched his investing to set and forget instead and stopped all the active trading altogether. Today he has consolidated and only has mutual funds in the areas of technology, IT and medical and science. So back in New Zealand, Tom continued to work and in the years leading up to retirement, he hit his earning peak of about $200,000 a year. Tom retired at the age of 62. He felt for him the time was right and he just quit cold turkey. There was no easing his way into retirement by working part-time or what have you. So I had to ask him, where is he investing now? He has his own home and a rental property. No, it's not the same one from all those years ago. He actually swore off rental properties many years ago because of the difficulties he often experienced with tenants who will just never care about your house as much as you do, he said. But he was offered an opportunity too good to refuse. So 10 years ago, he bought a new unit in one of the best suburbs in Christchurch, he told me, and he rents it to Housing New Zealand. He has guaranteed tenants for 52 weeks of the year, with a rental adjustment each year, and despite having no other debt and a substantial net worth, he keeps a small mortgage on it. Why on earth would he do that, I wanted to know. Well, the interest rate he pays is 6% and it's tax deductible. The chattels, uh, fittings and fixtures can be written off against the tax. For the last five years, the place ran at a paper loss, but the house still goes up in value. And for him, he is once again in it for the capital gains, and he clearly likes to play a little bit of what I like to call financial mathematical gymnastics as well. Keeps the brain busy, I guess. Now, Housing New Zealand are great tenants, and while they don't pay top dollar, they pay well enough and very consistently. And after 15 years, they actually refurbish his house to a high standard for him. And the house value is now at about $440,000 and he gets $410 a week rent for this, which works with his theory of needing $1 in rent for every $1,000 in house value. Now his net worth is spread with over half of it in housing and the other half in investments. And of those investments, a quarter are in KiwiSaver. This amount would have been far higher if he didn't find investment opportunities elsewhere, he said. And he had some good thoughts to share on KiwiSaver. First and foremost, Tom says to anyone listening, be in KiwiSaver, no excuses. Mandated company matching where you put in, say, 3% and your employer does the same, and of course you can go up from that 3%, means it's the best return on investment that you're ever going to get, plus you'll get the member tax credit of $521 a year from the government when you're over 18. And the earlier you start, the better. He was pretty adamant when he said, forget conservative and balanced funds, Go for growth or aggressive funds only. 
In his view, a conservative fund is really just covering inflation plus 1%, and forget a balanced fund because over 30 years a growth fund will absolutely outperform this as well. He believes that even if you're retiring, growth is the only one to be in because you should have built up enough money to take a couple of years of living expenses out and just leave the rest in. Or for those who are super conservative, he said maybe split 25% off and leave that amount in a conservative fund and put the rest in growth and come back to him in 10 years and me and let me know how you got on. When picking a fund, a KiwiSaver fund, his one pet peeve is the phrase on the bottom of everything you read that says past performance does not predict future returns. Well, he believes that if in the prior 10 years a provider has had a good track record and they have outperformed others for 10 years, it would be hard to bet that they will be one of the worst performers over the next 10 years. His own KiwiSaver is with Fisher Growth and he says that the dollar difference and being in a conservative fund or a growth fund over 30 years of investing is astronomical. Now, his other key strategy is to accumulate funds early in life. Although he appears to have had a really great time being a yuppie in the 1980s, he actually always went without to some extent and he invested money from a very young age. The more you can accumulate early, the longer that money is in the market, and his advice for an 18-year-old is to get into that sweet spot where you feel you have missed out on some luxuries of life a little bit so that you can feel a bit of pressure. Drip feed money in over a long period of time and put more money aside into investments than you are comfortable with and make sure you are putting a minimum of 4% into KiwiSaver and just get used to it, living on less than you make. Now, when you have the opportunity, move this amount up to 8%. And remember that after a market correction is the best time to buy. Everything is cheaper to purchase then. Today, Tom, who is now 66, only retains two individual shares, one from a company he used to work for and one for a company in Australia. So it's nothing really in terms of what he's got in his portfolio. When he turned 65, he also started to receive the government superannuation. Now, Tom, he is extremely financially secure, and that is despite going through a divorce. Despite having the means, he remains really frugal, and he says he is more tight with himself than with anyone else, as he can realistically afford anything he wants. But because he was never brought up to be that way, he's still cautious with his cash. And he will still spend time putting in the research if he is looking to book an airfare or purchase something new. He is always looking to get the absolute best value for his money, because that has been the habit of a lifetime. And he candidly said, I'm careful, but I don't actually give a shit how much I spend. As we drew to a close, I asked him what books or blogs or podcasts um, he could recommend to you and I. He has, not surprisingly, uh, never used a financial advisor. And although he scoured the newspapers for all those years, he does not really read books on finance or actually listen to anybody. It's his money and it's his decision where he will invest it. He also advises you and I to just do something and that experience will teach you and it will guide you. You have to go out and learn from your own mistakes and successes because only you have a total interest in your money. So do it for yourself to help yourself. He said that the average Kiwi is pretty pathetic at being financially literate and he acknowledged that some of us do need advisors but we don't need an advisor who is making money off us. He thinks that financial literacy should be taught in schools and we all should be given advice for free because it is so easy to make the wrong decision when someone is advising you for their own financial gain. So before I wrap up, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. They helped me bring this podcast to you for free, which is the exact amount of money Tom would have preferred to lose in some of his share investments. A big thank you to Pocketsmith for helping me bring this episode to you today. 
I use Pocketsmith to help me make great money decisions and keep track of my personal finances, and you can too, by going to thehappysaver.com forward slash Pocketsmith to get 50% off the first two months on a monthly premium subscription. Pocketsmith, clever budgeting software that lets you see your financial past, present, and future. So, well, there you have it. What an interesting bloke. You see, this is why we should ask people about money more often because there are people that you and I come into contact with every day who are leading this really interesting life, um, buying and selling Chrysler stocks and buying a Porsche with cash, I might add. Today, we have the likes of Warren Buffett and J.L. Collins to give us wise investing advice. But Tom, having conducted some pretty thorough research of his own and Learning a whole lot in the process is now equally able to help someone like you and me get more wins than losses on their investing tally board. After all the ups and downs, his investing strategy has ended up to be quite simple. A bit of it in housing, a bit of it in KiwiSaver, one or two individual stocks and the rest of it in funds. And one key takeaway for me was one that you may have missed, so I'll repeat it quickly. It's to feel a bit of pain. Invest a little more than you strictly feel comfortable with, and that will make you look at every dollar you spend, and it will help you cut unnecessary costs out of your daily life. Now, I've inadvertently been doing just this, and I have to say that when I see my net worth creep up, I've not missed a single dollar that I've put aside for my future happiness. So that's all from me this week. Massive thanks to Tom for taking the time to talk to me and I'm looking forward to picking up the phone and chatting to him further. Uh, I'll be back next Wednesday with another money journey of another Kiwi and if you enjoyed today's podcast, well please hit subscribe and it will automatically update in your podcast app each time I release a new episode. And if you want to get in touch, you can find me at thehappysaver.com and I would love it if you could also give me a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this Uh, and also share it with your friends. Those are the best ways that people can learn about the podcast and I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving.